0: It was a train wreck of an idea that ruined the careers of nearly everyone involved. In an attempt to humiliate the locker room bully at the time, the WWF embarked on the worst goddamn idea possible. Today, we talk about the brawl for all. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. Here we are. We're in this place. We are deep in our bunker of fun. Our secret layer. I hope I pressed the record button. We're hoping for the best. It's pitch black down here. The electricians haven't put in the uh, the lights in our secret bunker of nerd doom. What the hell am I talking about? What is this show? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling booker. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a ring announcer sometimes, but more important for today and right now, I am a professional wrestling history nerd, and I am here with the cousin it to my lurch. It's Chango Bronson, how are you, man? Shoots and ladders, man. I'm capital here in the bunker. It's
1: a little dark, but you know, we have the spark of entertainment for you, the people. Hello,
0: nerds. We're so happy right now, not just to be doing this show and talking about what we're gonna be talking about, but here in the state of Colorado, pro wrestling is back. Full audiences, full houses, big shows. It's amazing. We have had an incredible week, both with uh, Lucia Libre and Laughs and with Colorado Springs Wrestling. If you don't know us and you don't know those shows and you're in Colorado, come check us out. If not, check us out on social media or on YouTube. We can see the weird shit we do when we are not talking about history. And we're going to be talking about recent history. You might have seen a theme in the last few episodes where we talk about how martial arts, could be pro wrestling before uh you know the internet and the UFC. We talked about how the UFC originally was very much pro wrestling in its original carnival challenge form with all the weird little tricks you do to make a uh, a show a little more predetermined even though it's not technically predetermined and we're going to continue this Theme today, we're gonna be kind of going to a different route where we're gonna be talking about pro wrestling trying to be a real fight, or as I like to say, you can't go home again. And we're gonna be discussing one of the biggest disasters in professional wrestling in the television era. We're gonna be talking about the Brawl for All. Oh my God, the Brawl for All. If you've never seen this, watch it on the network, watch it on YouTube. It's a train wreck. And it's going to be fun to talk about. I love the Brawl for All. It is so
1: fantastic, especially going back, watching it now with Modern Eyes and re-immersing myself in the tournament and all the shenanigans that went on. It was go- the most glorious dumpster fire of professional wrestling, jumping the shark that I can remember from my high school teenage era and i am so excited to get get deep and nerdy
0: on it today it was the equivalent of like 1950s b horror science fiction movies where it's up and comers that nobody has heard of and the old timers who can't be in the a pictures anymore just trying to be on tv be on the silver screen earn a paycheck hoping to revitalize their careers and that did not happen for fucking anyone this thing laid everyone flat, sometimes literally, but everyone metaphorically. This was fights where nobody, and I mean nobody, was the winner at the end.
1: Yes, yeah, 16 burials, uh, countless career-ending or career-altering injuries, and every single person de-escalated their position and got less over because of it. But it was so amazing, I, I the context, and we'll get into it, but just... The to understand what this meant at that time was really remarkable, and then to see how terrible it was an execution was just oh, if if you hate life and you're dead inside, this is just the French fret.
0: Uh, What do you call it? The The
1: chef's kiss, yes. The chef's kiss of just ironic,
0: terrible dumpster fire gloriousness. It almost needs a mystery science theater style track. Maybe that's a thing we'll do and uh, send it out to our fans if they want it. Because, good Lord, and this was something that didn't need to happen. They had no reason to do this. TV wrestling was as hot as it ever was. They didn't need to draw extra attention with some sort of weird um, stunt like this. This was the Monday Night Wars. This was the Attitude Era. But for reasons which will still be hard to understand at the end of the road, from June 29th, 1998 to August 24th of the same year, WWF, now WWE, embarked upon one of the single worst ideas in modern pro wrestling history, the brawl for all. Anyone familiar with this is probably laughing already, but for those who don't know about this disaster, let me lay out the basics. This was during one of the hottest eras of professional wrestling, like I said. The Monday Night Wars were in full swing, WWF at this time was anchored by a Steve Austin Undertaker feud, and The Rock was catching fire with the audience. So they had Everybody tuning in, no matter what. There was so many reasons for wrestling fans to already be watching this, so why the hell would they do this? Vince Russo, again, some of you are laughing already, got the idea from for a tough man competition with WWF talent after John Bradshaw Layfield claimed he could beat anyone on the roster in a bar fight. And keep in mind that at this time, Ken Shamrock and Dan Severn were both on the roster, both legitimate shooters, both former UFC champs who went to the WWF for a little bit of an easier and bigger paycheck.
1: Yeah, the the
0: statement in and of itself is preposterous. The premise of
1: devising an entire sub-style of the show and completely exposing the business in the process just to prove the lesson to the bully as as it's been presented over the years that this the genesis of this idea was to shut JBL up for from being a bully and any anything that that is incepted that well thought out is obviously going to turn out spectacularly
0: before this happened layfield suggested they start a hardcore division for the WWF pretty much trying to steal the thunder from ECW and its various uh, influences on other shows but instead we ended up with this. Vince Russo cooked up this idea simply to see JBL get beat in a real fight. Really, that's why. With the expanded roster trying to bring all the good talent over from WCW, they had a huge roster and a lot of guys, especially the old style, you know, you know, NWA old tough guys with their yeah you know, mean stepdad bods, but where had the reputation for being the toughest bar brawlers in town, there wasn't a lot of room for those guys. And with that new direction the company was taking in their presentation, the old-style legit tough guys were left with very little to do. So participation in this goofball tough man competition was voluntary, but most of those wrestlers had few options other than take part in it to get back on TV and hopefully pick up some momentum in their stalled careers, hopefully look tough, on television, so they can therefore leverage that into good matches and maybe a good angle on television. Plus, five thousand per match and a hundred thousand to win is a big motivator. Oh yeah, especially when you're
1: fighting for a place on TV on the card. Like you said, this was in the midst of the Monday Night Wars. The late '90s pro wrestling was the hottest it's been. In my in our adult lives, really, this was the hottest it's been. It hasn't been this hot since. You're talking prime Stone Cold. You're talking prime NWO and the the entire deal. It was hot. the The legitimate war was on. So then to bury the business and say, now we're going to have legitimate fighting, it was very interesting to play that card at that time, especially after Vince McMahon had refused to buy the UFC. I don't understand why he would then dabble his toe like this instead of using actual
0: professional fighters because they did not have many on the roster that they actually could use because as much as pro wrestling and legitimate grappling have a bit of overlap no matter what, because even if you are not a trained amateur wrestler, submission wrestler, jiu-jitsu guy getting into pro wrestling, you at least understand how the body moves. You know how to manipulate another human being. It does translate to a certain extent, but most of the top guys clearly would have nothing to do with this. So it was very much an undercard opening match, guys with nothing to do, not on television, who would want to take part in this, Almost out of economic desperation. So you had a lot of guys who were motivated, but you also had a lot of guys who were kind of on the tail end of their careers or guys who were just drifting um, based on their, their aura, their, uh, their, their, their vibe, their reputation of being these tough as nail bar brawlers, like the, like Road Warrior Hawk, who, you know, had built his entire career on being a very tough man to work with in the ring, being a bar bouncer and a weightlifter and, uh, you know, anything else he was. Toughness was their bread and butter. It was who they are. It was their character. It was their life. And this is their way to prove it in order to get back into a good television spot. And it didn't quite do that. In fact,
1: it did pretty much the opposite. It killed the aura of two of the most genuinely respected and revered tough guys from the previous era. Like you said, Crockett, NWA, Road Warrior Hawk. Dr. Death Steve Williams, he was considered for a long time, him or, him or Haku, the toughest guy on the planet, the toughest professional wrestler in the world. And it was really, it was, it was kind of sad to see him go out this way and for this to be the thing that that
0: guy's remembered for. And it was also a very strange setup just for the the matches themselves. The rules were very weird with three one-minute rounds with whomever landed the most punches getting five points per round and clean takedowns getting five points and a knockdown gaining a whopping 10 points. Knockdowns, for some reason, had a standing eight count, uh, maybe two just shave time off for television, tie it into more of a boxing thing because it was essentially boxing matches with takedowns. There wasn't ground fighting. There weren't kicks. It was very strange rules, especially for pro wrestlers that were not trained or conditioned for this type of endeavor because yes, they were in great shape for wrestling, but being in wrestling shape is not the same as being in boxing shape. It's not the same as being in swimming shape. These are all different types of muscles, different types of you know tendon strength. So when you put a guy out of his element, even though he could be a great athlete over here, he's going to run out of gas over there.
1: Yeah, and shout out to all the guys that gassed in three one-minute rounds on this thing, anaerobic all-star personified. Because that also made for a high pace of action. I also found it interesting. There's a lot we're going to get into it. The, the the minimal clinch work. I thought that was going to be play much bigger role with the rule set. It's basically Boxing with takedowns, I thought the the clinch and the dirty
0: boxing was gonna end up being much
1: more of a factor than it
0: was. Yes, cause uh unlike many of the wrestlers we have talked about, you know, through the eighteen hundreds from the carnival days to Muldoon uh the the type of guy who had a solid greco-roman background really doesn't exist in pro wrestling per se a lot of those guys because that's not an exciting style they either have to get away from it or they go to MMA or they just stay in wrestling or they get a job at Best Buy so we don't have those type of skills We're like the Randy Couture dirty boxing those guys were doing MMA not this so it didn't really we didn't see a lot of that and maybe that's for the best it would have been even worse and i hated the one minute rounds as did everybody the one minute rounds were clearly set to make the action high paced and to hide the fact that these guys were not really in boxing condition so they could keep their wind up but with one minute rounds there is no room for strategy or feeling out or a good back and forth or for the audience to feel a momentum and start cheering or booing there's, there's no time really to do much of anything other than come out and swing or take a dude down. One minute is not a lot of time for anything.
1: Yeah, and thank God that they didn't give him more time because every single person in this tournament was exposed as a completely awkward and ineffective shoot fighter. It really—the longer you're out there, the more you get exposed. And in, even in 60 second rounds,
0: they couldn't hide the fact that these guys really were not very well trained. Yeah, because a lot of these guys did have those reputations for being tough guys or bar brawlers or you know bouncers like the uh, Legion of Doom had been. But there is a huge difference between boxing and shoot takedowns and you know punching out uh, you know the the drunken goofballs at the uh, the honky tonk on a Saturday night. Uh, you you always use the term drunk zombies, right? Is that what you call them?
1: Oh, yes. Drunk. Yes, exactly. Because they're either doing the Frankenstein or the overhand pitch, you know, and and it's 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 horribly predictable. It's hilarious. And this looked like a lot of that. And I want to be clear on something. There were individual competitors in this tournament that had certain aspects of fight training that looked quite good, actually, at certain moments. But the way that the rule set allowed it to translate i mean when dan Severn can't finish a guy because of the rules that tells you how inadequate the rule set are to allow skill to win the day because at the end of the day you end up with these giant gassed out monsters throwing haymakers at each other
0: it's like we talked about with uh you know we talked about mma or martial arts like real legitimate fighting in ring whether it was Catch as catch can rules in the 1800s, circus rules in the you know after the Civil War, all the way up to the mixed martial arts era, there are always levels to things. You could know how to throw a decent jab that you learned from your uh, golden local golden gloves uncle, uh, but that doesn't make you a boxer per se. It makes you somebody who knows a little bit about boxing. So when you have a bunch of guys who know a little bit about boxing and might have had like two to three weeks of training you're going to get something the equivalent of, you know, your tough man competition that you see at the country bar on the edge of town on a Saturday night where all you do is uh, show up like some sort of, you know, hillbilly smoker where it's just, hey, you know, here's some 16 ounce gloves. Uh, You get paid in beer. Go have fun, you crazy kids. And it's just, it's messy. It's a brawl. Sometimes it's exciting. But once again, none of those people are going to be elevated to taking on even an amateur boxer. And that's the level of skill we had with almost everybody on this. But here's the problem. All of these guys were being presented as fighting stars in a in-universe fighting television show. So it's a very weird thing to do. And you might be saying, wait a minute, did you say this was on television? Because this feels like something today would have been like a weird online exclusive, some sort of weird network reality show, yeah. something that would not be presented as a marquee thing. More like just a weird side quest bullshit for uh, kind of like it would almost be like the uh, Ultimate Fighter season four, where they would take a bunch of guys who are kind of washed up, directionless, and say, "Hey, let's let's put you guys in here. You're going to do something you're not comfortable with. It'll be exciting. It'll be dramatic. And at the end of the road, you know, somebody's going." To win and they get to do something cool because of that or just win money. but no these things were just dropped right in the middle of Monday Night Raw which is one of the worst fucking things you can possibly do when you have these very stylistic pro wrestling matches in that modern pro wrestling television style or you know how it was in the late 90s and then you juxtapose a bunch of people that you have seen on television doing that. But now it's a real fight. It's being called a real fight when in universe we are accepting the suspension of disbelief reality that I thought we were watching real competition and real fights. That's the emotional story you're telling. And then midway we say, none of that was real, but this is real and it's terrible.
1: Yeah, uh, it was, it was a weird thing. They did have a, a decent spin on it in that it was another version with different rule sets. And that's why these, some of these guys were out of their elements and I think that was a pretty good corrective spin after they saw that these guys did not look like professional athletes doing what they are paid to do. These guys looked like brutes and it 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 really it was amazing though. It was in the middle of Monday Night Raw. Like, I mean, we're going to get into it, but I remember being a kid and thinking about, you know, as a guy who wrestled in high school and this is this is going on the air while I'm in high school. It was so fascinating that the way this played out and my perspective on it at the time versus my perspective now it was it was regardless of what a train wreck it was it was truly captivating for me when we were watching
0: this in real time and they had to present this on the same level of excitement and anticipation as the worked pro wrestling matches because keep in mind once again this is when we're seeing the rock we're seeing the undertaker we're seeing stone cold steve austin People are going fucking crazy for these huge, charismatic, now legendary stars. And then we're going to put a record scratch. Here are two goofballs, some of which you maybe don't even know who they are, now having like a weird boxing match. And you might think, hey guys... You know what? How would they know that this would be a train wreck? Nobody really had any context for what a real fight would look like versus a worked fight. But keep this in mind this was 1998. This was the age of the UFC finally solidifying itself as mixed martial arts, as opposed to the, you know, Horion Gracie almost produced clash of styles that made the U- early UFCs what they were. We were around the time of this wasn't like Dan Severn learning what a triangle choke was. This isn't, you know, a bunch of karate goofballs getting double-legged constantly. This is the time when legitimate competition between very well-matched and multi skilled guys was starting to take over the sport. You know, UFC had been running for about half a decade. The, you know, Pride had been running for almost a year. Fighters like Frank Shamrock, Tito Ortiz, Pedro Hizo, Randy Couture, Boss Rutan, Kazushi Sakuraba, and various members of the Gracie family had shown what grappling and striking and a mix of both looked like in a real fight, what a top level fighter looked like, and what Honestly, a real fight turned into between skilled people. And that's a very important differential that I'm using. Skilled strikers and a bunch of, uh, you know, brawlers who can clear out a bar on a, uh, on a Saturday night in the hockey talk on the edge of town. Those are two different aesthetics and two very different levels. Yeah. And it was also very
1: interesting because keep in mind, they had Ken Shamrock. Billed as the world's most dangerous man, fresh off his UFC run. He was pro wrestling's, he was the proto Brock Lesnar, right? He was the guy that pro wrestling fans could hold up and say, this guy could potentially beat any other fighter
0: on the planet. And he wasn't even in the tournament, yeah, the there were like Dan Severn originally wasn't supposed to be in there as well, and there's you know the uh, in retrospect or at the time in the announcing they tried to say oh he's not allowed to be in here like he's forbidden from taking part in this tournament. I have a feeling, just judging from what I know about Ken Shamrock, and for those listening, uh, if you need a book to read, Jonathan Snowden's biography of Ken Shamrock is absolutely amazing. Pick it up, you'll learn so much just about the early days of the sport and the man himself but Ken Shamrock came to WWF because the money in the UFC had been dwindling, they were having trouble being on pay-per-view. Um, and you know not a knock against him but Shamrock really was a very injury prone fighter. You know, he, uh, he he would wreck himself constantly, have to drop off fights. That's why it wasn't at UFC 2. He had a knee injury and in pancreas uh, almost ended everything there. Uh that's why he dropped out after his semifinal fight in uh, UFC 3. So when you go to pro wrestling, which beats the shit out of you, but it could be a lot easier than the shoot style he'd been doing in Japan and the actual fighting he'd been doing in the UFC and the money they were offering was good, hundred K, but you know what? Why would you risk your health, your new career? And honestly, your reputation, because as we've talked about before, in a real fight, no matter how stacked it is, there's always that chance. You know, you always see the memes. Your chances of being killed by a, you know, a, a raccoon are never 0% with like a raccoon peeking around a corner. The chances of losing a legitimate, true, actual fight to goofball number three, who was uh, just uh, being a loudmouth. That's never zero. And when you're now banking your reputation as the world's most dangerous man in worked matches, your career ends the next fucking day if uh, Goofus McDoofus catches you on the chin.
1: Yeah, especially when you factor in that takedowns and precision boxing were never Shamrock's specialty. And the reality of fighting is this, prize fighting, street fighting. The sport of fighting is different from any other sport for this reason. You can't be up 55-0 to in a football game and lose on one play. It doesn't matter how much better you are than your opponent. They have a puncher's chance. They have the ability to win at any moment with any single strike in this, in this set of rules, or you could get seriously injured, as we will see. And I, frankly, don't blame him for not taking part in it, because there was nothing to gain and everything to lose.
0: Oh, absolutely. And as you just pointed out, it leaned away from his skill set, because his takedowns were you know, they were more than adequate. He was a very aggressive wrestler in, you know, in his younger days, he was a very aggressive football player before he broke his neck. When he got into worked wrestling, he was still very aggressive. You know, he he was a very aggressive athlete across the board, but his specialty was getting you on the ground, working you over and finding a submission, you know, whether it was, you know, worked matches or real matches, that was his strategy. And this was a weird rules where it was boxing with takedowns. But once you took him down, They just stand you back up. There was no groundwork. There was no looking for submissions. There was no him grabbing a leg and twisting until uh, there was a tap, and then you know probably twisting a little more because he was kind of a dick for a long time. Read that book I told you about. You'll find out all about that. So this is a guy who really really had no reason to get involved, and I forgot who dropped out, who uh, you know who was you know missing in action and didn't want to do it. But Dan Severn did go into this, and. I'm very curious, and we'll discuss that after we discuss his match, about why he did it and what the ultimate uh, consequences thereof were. But we talked about how the UFC, real fighting, reality fighting, MMA, it was all there, all in uh, in the public's eye. It was starting to catch fire in pop culture, but that doesn't necessarily discount the in-world reality that you enjoy while watching pro wrestling. You still watch wrestling and you enjoy the action. You enjoy the emotion. You enjoy the storytelling. You root for the good guy. You boo the bad guy. You pick sides. You get exciting because as we've always discussed, that emotional mythology of that almost like comic book reality of wrestling resonates with the mythology that is built into our human souls it's carl jung it's joseph campbell it's the hero with a thousand faces it's why we always go for the hero and follow his quest all the way to beating the final monster and claiming the treasure or beating the uh the the heel and getting the belt it's the same story so that's why we still enjoy it it's just like how we learned that hong kong kung fu movies and american martial arts flicks like blood sports aren't what real fights look like, but we still emotionally connect to an unrealistic fight based on excitement and characters building so we have someone to root for and against, just like in pro wrestling. In addition to trying to cash in on reality fighting by dropping this tournament right in the middle of Monday Night Raw, there's rumors that they were using this to launch the career in WWF of recent signee Dr. Death, Steve Williams. We'll talk more about him, who he was, where it went later during his fights, but the rumor is they wanted to launch him in this, assuming he would clean house, go to the top, and they could put him in a uh, feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin off of the heat and the momentum of this, which honestly would have been great.
1: Yeah, if it had gone according to plan, but that's what happens when you don't have a Hippodrome. Hippodrome! You, there are 50 shades of gray when it comes to levels of working a fight between a work and a shoot, from a full-on work as we know it today, to where one guy's taking a fall and the other guy doesn't know it, to everything in between. But this takes away your ability to tell any kind of story that you have control over, especially when they did such a poor job of matchmaking and the the way that the tournament was structured and the time in between fights in the early one. I mean, I'm excited to get into this because it is terribly, terribly done.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like if you had a... You know, uh, uh, like a like a football or baseball or hockey playoff, and you really haven't seen how any team actually plays. You make a bracket, but you still pick a winner and make your plans based on who you think is going to win this sporting tournament, these playoffs. It's madness, but nobody really on the uh, on the WWF side of creative clearly thought this through. They just thought this would like progress the way they probably assumed it was, and they didn't need to work matches. They didn't need to the brackets to stack the deck in front of in, in anyone's favor so I, I really wish like I mean there are shoot interviews about it but it's not really any behind the scenes things other than Jim Cornette saying it was the stupidest fucking idea ever or uh, or Vince Russo burying JBL and telling the story about how oh, he cooked this thing up just to make him look bad. I wish like there was like a, a, like the back room guys, the writers going, "Oh, we knew this was going to be a shit show and they told us it was going to be fucking gold." I assume those stories exist, they're just not in a uh, video form. Hopefully we would hear them someday. Because as we have discussed again and again and again, when we talk about how a worked match in the long run makes more money than a legit fight, WWF would soon learn the lesson that pro wrestling, as we know, in order to make real money in the long run, you can't count on real matches to go your way. Match fixing kept the business alive after the awful Gotch Hackenschmidt match and became the norm in the business in the 20s. And for good reason, in real matches, Top contenders can be beaten by nobodies. Unheralded contenders can be knocked off by big box office champs. Injuries can sideline careers and ruin pay-per-views or big stadium fights, whatever era you're in. Emotional storytelling can be derailed by losses or bad showings. Real matches can be boring or downright terrible. So wrestling became a work to become entertaining, then transitioned into pure entertainment as a work because that's how you make money in the long run. I mean, you know, for the MMA fans again, like how 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 many terrible, truly terrible fights did Anderson Silva have in the middle of his, of his title reign when he was getting bored? You know, we always talk about George St. Pierre being knocked out by uh, um, uh, Matt Matt uh, no, uh, Sarah. Matt Sarah. You know, there's always those upsets which ruin. Huge box office matches, and that can even happen in uh, you know this is like the uh, the Wayne Munn story you know we get brought up where everybody's plans for a legitimate or clo- cloaked as legitimate matches can be derailed in a fucking instant if somebody doesn 't play ball or if somebody has a bad night it all goes away so quickly. So that's why wrestling became what it is, what it was in the fifties where you had a tough guy holding the belt to make sure nobody could take it off of him. You had those days where wrestlers would be fired if they lost a bar fight. So you would have legitimate tough people, but now, you know, you do have great athletes from wrestling backgrounds coming into pro wrestling. You have guys from MMA backgrounds coming into wrestling, but this was kind of like a weird era where it was like a lot of like like South and you know Southern and Texas tough guys who just kind of transition into wrestling organically. Football players transitioning into it because those guys had nowhere really to go with their uh, their athletic background. So these weren't guys who were great fighters outside of clearing out the uh, drunken doofus who tries to challenge them at the uh, the bar at two in the morning. But once again, like we say, beating up the uh, the, the local tough guy, just like in the old circus days, is a much much different thing than having to compete under boxing rules, kickboxing rules, MMA rules, as CM Punk found out. It's all different based on what you're trying to do under certain rules. You can be, you know, the toughest guy at the Denny's at 2 a.m., but be a terrible fighter in the ring. And it, it begs the question, who came up
1: with this rule set? This rule set, I mean, you, you would think, and first of all, okay, let me back up a step further than that who understands better than Vince McMahon that controlling the outcome is how you make money it it really is remarkable that they went so far to truly give no fucks about who is coming out of this thing it makes me think that maybe the idea was we're going to let this be the train wreck we're going to let this derail as many of these guys as it's going to derail so that everyone understands what a terrible decision this is and we never have to do this shit again. Because the fact that they didn't even take the so obvious steps to like protect the guys they wanted to to go further in the tournament, to calculate age or style versus style, it's remarkable to me that they threw this out there with no bumpers, no safety net for it, and it became...
0: As bad as it could possibly be. Well, I feel like it was okay because this was the age of spectacle, pushing the boundaries, pushing the limits, doing the craziest fucking thing you could possibly do for the sake of ratings in an era where they barely had dug their way out from almost bankruptcy to become bigger than ever. And that was all based on shock value and doing crazy things. And that was true for a lot in that yeah. kind of like that final pre-internet era time, where it would be, hey, you know, you see those like video cassette ads on, uh, you know, yeah, on, on Girls TV. Gone wild, Girls gone
1: Jerry wild, Jerry Springer era. Yeah,
0: Jerry Springer, uh, you know, bum fights, like all this crazy shit, where people, you, I think they were banking on bringing in the audience. Oh yeah, of the fucking like you know, drunk bros or like, oh man, you see those dudes fuck each other up. Yeah, so I totally like. I'm I, clearly this is just conjecture and me guessing, but I feel like this was you know Vince McMahon okay to this to try to grab another demographic on top of his already huge growing audience on television at that era during the Monday Night Wars. He was trying to grab the frat boys who wanted to see human train wrecks, uh, you know, just, just something so fucking just crazy and awful that they're going to watch again and again on their, uh, you know, home recorded VHS, VCR thing. Remember those? Those were a thing once. They, he was going for an audience that, you know, is terrible people, but it's still ratings. I feel that was the plan without a lot of back of the brain idea on, cause it's like, these were all mostly mid card or, you know, nobodies or people who had nothing to do at that time. So I don't think he cared a lot. He was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We'll do, we'll do that as a fun thing. And I'm just worried about what's going on at the next pay-per-view. That's my guess. That's what I think happened. Cause that's, you know, how I, I feel like it played out.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, UFC was still considered a bit of a spectacle. This is still a few years before the first season of The Ultimate Fighter where it truly became accepted in mainstream where it was on TV non-pay shows. This is also like celebrity deathmatch. You know, the uh South Park was still like a pretty new show at this time. We were just coming of like our generation was coming of age that self-aware, postmodern, ironic flavor of of entertainment and and you know Jerry Springer crash TV you know Cky2k like this is all coming out at that same time it was it was punk rock in its own way
0: yeah jackass you know same era yeah and totally this was with MMA uh UFC this was that era where they were falling off the pay-per-view uh you know uh map that's why guys like Severn and Shamrock and you know Tank Abbott they all went to pro Wrestling because It was secure paydays as opposed to, oh, we may have to move the venue to a different state at the last minute. Um, Pay-per-view companies were dropping the UFC left and right because this is before unified rules. This is before Zufa. This is before they tried to present it as a legitimate sport. The idea that, um, uh, you know, as we talked about in the UFC episodes... They were presenting that as some sort of like crazy gladiator deathmatch, mortal combat in real life, which gets you attention, but also gets you attention from athletic commissions and uh, like Republican lawmakers like McCain, who tried to chase them out of every town. So they were a victim of their own success in that realm. And they had dwindling business opportunities for quite some time. And that's why they I feel like uh, WWE, uh, F, you know WWE now, WWF kind of saw that Gap to fill to kind of pull in the uh, UFC fans that couldn't really find UFCs unless you're renting them at Blockbuster. So I can see there was a reason behind it, but I feel like in retrospect, we look back and go, that wasn't a very good plan. But you know, sometimes at the moment you go, we. We're winning on every level. Everything we're doing is a home run. Let's just fucking do it because you know we don't have bad ideas, right? So they progressed and they went with this on television. But what unfolded was an absolute mess. It ruined the mystique of several stars, led to several injuries and upsets that the company didn't expect or appreciate. The audiences hated it, chanting, Boring and we want wrestling. Jim Cornette called it the stupidest thing that WWF had ever done. Sean Waltman called it the dumbest fucking idea in WWE history. And who, boy, were they right? So again, they were just dropping this in the middle of Raw on Monday nights. And the first outing saw Steve Blackman take on Mark Merrow and Mark Canterbury fight JBL on the June 29th, 1998 edition of Raw. Mark Merrow had pretty much nothing to do on WWF television. He had a hot run under the gimmick of Johnny B. Bad at WCW, which was not legally transferred to WWF when he jumped ship, so he came in just as Mark Merrow without this fun gimmick character that everybody loved. So the former amateur boxer, Merrow, saw a great opportunity to be featured on TV that he thought would go someplace good, but unfortunately, he couldn't stop a double-leg takedown to save his life, and... Blackman landed double leg after double leg, cruising on points, while the crowd hated every second of it. And in the other match, JBL beat Canterbury on points with aggressive boxing, or, well, brawling, I guess is what we would call it objectively.
1: Yeah, I don't think it it earns the classification. First first thing I, I take away from that, on paper, that first match, you could make an argument that those were the two most skilled and qualified on paper trained fighters in the entire tournament. Steve Blackman is a, is a pretty accomplished martial artist, well-rounded, and he showed the strategy of a well-rounded martial artist going against a one-dimensional boxer. But yeah, Mark Marrow, Johnny B. Bad, he was a legitimate boxer. He moved really well, but it showed that if you can't stop the takedown, you can't box. And because of that stylistic matchup and the rule set, It just led for takedown after takedown after takedown. And they spent half the fight just getting back
0: up. And that wasn't what the fans wanted to see for this first one. Especially with a one-minute round where if you think about timing, it's like if I shoot, I connect, we take a couple of steps, I suck you down, I get position, and we stand back up. That can be 10 seconds right there of a one-minute round. So... And especially in matches where there are no weight classes. Keep in mind, this wasn't like heavyweights only or anything like that. It was just everybody against everybody. A good boxer who was a little undersized against a decent wrestler, that's going to go one way almost every time. And again, the audience came there to watch, you know, high spots and good promos and the Undertaker do a sit up after a fucking uh, knockdown. People came there to watch wrestling. Not this. They hated it big time, but they were already committed and they continued. The next round was Bracus versus Savio Vega, with Vega winning on points in one of the few entertaining matches of this whole thing, since they just went at each other like Don Fry and Takayama in pride. And Road Warrior Hawk versus Darren Draws Drawsdov on July 6th. Draws, if you don't remember him, uh, he was one of the fudder parts of Beyond the Mat. Go watch that, it's a blast. Hawk came out in full Legion of Doom makeup, so points for that. The fight was a sloppy bar fight, brawling end with a draw. So they they pretty much fought to a draw. It was just sloppy takedowns, sloppy punches. Um, I think they were going to have a rematch, but Hawk was hurt, so no rematch. Draws advanced, and Hawk's tough guy Mystique was gone forever.
1: There was one cool moment in this fight where Hawk's mouthpiece got knocked out, and Draws spit his out. And that little organic moment, It was people popped on that. I... I was told that and I went back and watched it and it was an actual moment. It was pretty cool. And it was a tragic foreshadowing in the context of how both of those guys, you know, their their professional wrestling careers came to an end in really tragic fashion. But yeah, shout out to Road Warrior Hawk for fighting with the Legion of Doom face paint. That was, that was some gangster shit for sure. Oh,
0: absolutely. That was bringing pro wrestling to a real fight, trying to, be pro wrestling it's a very strange arrangement but he went full uh full full force on it but the 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 road warriors the legions those two guys had been banking on this career of just that aura of just being the toughest motherfuckers you will ever face off against and then when they come out he comes out for a real fight and he's throwing just like bar brawl or p- arm punches he doesn't know how to put his hips into anything he's, he's just being a just swinging and swinging and swinging and the other guy's not going down but the other guy's also not really a great fighter. You just go go. Oh, well. I uh, I, I look at you differently now. It's it's because so many of these fights looked like the first like you know hard sparring session of somebody who's been doing uh, boxing for about you know ab- about a month where they're like you know they're full of themselves. It's time to really try things. They come out aggressively and it's a disaster to learn that lesson. But they, everybody had to learn that lesson in front of a full fucking arena and on television. On Monday Night Raw. Yeah, I I do have to say, though,
1: for both Road Warrior Hawk and for Dr. Death, it was really unfortunate that this came around at the point in their careers, respectively, when it did. Because if this had been 10 years earlier, I think it would have been a different story. I'm not saying those guys were the greatest trained fighters of all time, but it makes a difference when you're trying to dodge punches in your late 30s, early 40s, and you got the mileage that Road Warrior Hawk's got. Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean... You know, trying to, uh, you know, as somebody who's, uh, you know, definitely passed his uh, athletic prime, I, you would not believe how many times I bonk myself on the head, working the slip bag when I'm uh, training boxing that I never would have done, you know, when, in my twenties. So yes, we do have to take mileage, wear and tear and years on that guy, but he still did step up. You do have to say, cool, you, you took a big chance, but it did definitely crush his aura pretty much forever. The next first round outing featured Bart Gunn versus Bob Holly, which looked like two wrestlers who had spent a few weeks training to box part-time. It looked like those like those uh like UFC like six through 10s where a wrestler learned to box to try to beat up the jujitsu jitsu guys and he he was just arm punching, like hips flat-footed, didn't really know how to do anything but put his uh, fists out there. And Bob Holly was definitely bringing some pro wrestling to it. Like after they come out and meet the rules, he like shoved Bart Gunn from behind and then like shoved him at the end, like being very pro wrestling about it, which is kind of weird to do in a shoot, but that's where his brain was. Can't really uh, talk too much shit about it. And Gunn won on points, but he beat Holly's ass start to finish. Oh yeah. And, and I want
1: to clarify this too. Skill aside these are big motherfuckers that are throwing bombs. They, in this tournament, one constant was that these guys were throwing to finish the fight. That's why they tired out so quickly. There wasn't a lot of skill or setup behind it, but man, when they hit each other, it was serious. And Bob Hawley He's not a little guy, but he's he's not Bart Gun size. And man, he took some shots.
0: Oh, absolutely. He got he got his uh his world rocked several times. It's more a testament to his uh tough head uh than anything else because there's really been a you know a, a mythicizing, mythologicizing, however we want to put it, making up fake words, but there's been a mythology built around Bart Gun as being this. Uh, unheralded underdog with these amazing boxing skills and really his boxing was terrible but he just could. T- he, but yeah he was just in good shape and could he had like two like his right hook was fucking fantastic yeah totally. and he could time it very well and sometimes that's all you need at this level
1: he was a guy that had been in some fights he wasn't a trained guy one way you can tell there's certain tells When you watch some of these, like when he's going against Godfather Godfather later on, and we'll get there, but you see the difference between somebody that actually knows how to box a little bit, and when a guy's throwing his power punch six, seven times in a row with the same hand, you know, that's just bad boxing mechanics, but goddamn, when he was hitting them, man, there was so much snap behind it. That guy is a, he was like throwing
0: to take people's heads off And when it hit, man, it delivered. And he had the conditioning to keep doing it. And so on this level, this, uh, this, this skill level playing field, that is a, that is a huge advantage no matter what you're doing. And speaking of people who had advantages, the next one that night on July 13th was the Godfather versus Dan the Beast Severn. Dan the Beast Severn, a former UFC Tournament champion, a former UFC tournament runner-up, former NWA champion, a high-level wrestler in legitimate sports, like the legitimate amateur level. I think it was an Olympic uh, alternate, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he was,
1: a, he was a multi-time Olympic team member as an alternate. He won, I believe, either the Pan Am Games or the Nationals. He was He was widely regarded as one of the best amateur wrestlers the U.S. had produced in a long time.
0: And he transitioned to pro wrestling. He'd been kind of pro wrestling up to that point, but now he's on the bigger stage. And originally he wasn't in this tournament. I don't think they wanted to put a dominant shooter in there. He went in there uh, up against um, Godfather and put on just a takedown clinic nonstop, one on points. But you could see how upset he was like he was visibly angry at the crowd reaction to this they were booing this match like nobody's business because it is a legitimate shoot fight he's doing what he does in a shoot fight which is takedowns the crowd didn't dig it the crowd was angry the crowd wanted wrestling pro wrestling, not the real thing that they were saying, booed it like crazy, and he was clearly getting pissed. It almost made me think about that uh, when I watched it today. It made me think of, remember when they had The Rock run in to like, celebrate with Roman Reigns when he won the Rumble? And then you see him like wondering, what the fuck is he? They're getting booed out of the fucking building. Yeah. And he's like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. So Dan Severn dominated his performance, but you could tell he did not have a good time doing it. And then the final installment of the first round, and keep in mind, this is 16 people. So this is set up to be a rather long tournament because they're only doing two of these uh, every Monday. So there's, this is gonna be a long progression. The final installment of the first round was held on July 20th, and the audience had the privilege of watching eight ball versus two cold Scorpio with Scorpio winning on points. Scorpio actually did have like some good head movements, I a mean, good shoulder movements. You could tell he did learn a little bit of boxing at some point. So he, he wasn't just like the guy walking up with his arms up, shoulders stiff head up, just throwing straight punches that have nothing but arm muscles behind it. He had a little bit of experience, clearly, and he won on points. And then we get to the heavily favored Dr. Death Steve Williams versus Quebecer Pierre. Um, Pierre didn't wear his eye patch, but you know what? It didn't save him because he was brutally TKO'd uh, at the end of that one. And for
1: those of you that don't know who that is, that is a guy who goes by the name of PCO nowadays in Ring of Honor. So just in case you didn't know that he was the first
0: victim of Doctor Death in the Brawl for All. And good God, is Pco doing some of the coolest things at this point in his career than most people half his age are doing. Watch some of that when you have a chance to do so. So the first mat, the first uh, the first round is complete. Um, the 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 you know the opening round is done. It's time to move on to the quarterfinals. Things have gone bad so far, but things are definitely going to turn to shit because, like we talked about, nobody really scouted or like thought about how the bracket should be to make a favorite a favorite or make somebody they wanted suppressed suppressed. They should have taken some notes from Horian Gracie on how to arrange a, a tournament bracket to favor the guy you want to win. Yeah, you'd think that Vince McMahon and the
1: brain trust of WWF wouldn't need that much help in swaying outcomes to break in their favor but man they did not give a fuck who won that is the way it came off because it you had names losing to guys that people didn't even know who they were left and right guys are getting hurt it was terrible
0: man and things went badly right out of the gate if the rumors of how they wanted this to end are true on july 27th we saw Bart Gunn versus Steve Williams. For those unfamiliar with Dr. Death Steve Williams, he was an imposing college wrestler and football player turned pro wrestler who gained a reputation for being tough as nails through his NWA, Mid-South, and All Japan runs. On Pure Aura alone, he was the favorite to win this thing, but nobody was expecting Bart Gunn. Remember what we were just saying about scouting? Gunn was strong, had good hands, and was hugely motivated because creative had nothing for him at the time. He was a mid-card tag specialist and was easily the least used and least recognized wrestler on the card. So imagine the reaction when he came out, went toe-to-toe with Williams. Williams did tear his hamstring in this fight, and then... Gunn knocked him the fuck out. Steve Williams, injured, knocked out, his aura, his reputation destroyed, and his career never recovered after being legitimately floored by a mid-carter on national television.
1: Yeah, and and a couple more aspects to this. Bart Gunn was probably close to 15 years younger. Dr. Death had just been brought in off of off of the couch, basically, and Keep in mind, this was, he wasn't just a football player and a wrestler in college. He was a four-time All-American in both sports, and that is a pretty remarkable level of accomplishment in legitimate competitive collegiate wrestling. But man, he was so slow compared to the guy in front of him, and the rule set did not help him at all, because the problem, the same problem that I saw Dan Severn have, you, you, you said you felt like it was the fans reaction that was really upsetting him. I thought it was that he had secured the takedown and then he had to let this guy up. You had to release the kill after you've done your job. And as a trained fighter, that is so destructive to your programming because it's like, why is he getting up, right? And had Dr. Death been able to keep him down if he had had the, the rules allow him to do so, it potentially could have been a different fight. But the rules being what they were, it was inevitable that he was going to get hit with one of those time bombs, man. And speaking of Dan
0: Severn again, on August 3rd, we have our next fight. Scorpio versus Godfather. That's right, Godfather is back because Severn backed out, officially claiming he had nothing to prove. But probably realized he's not getting paid enough for this shit show that was getting slaughtered by critics. And was pissed at how the crowd booed him mercilessly and how that could affect his TV run and his fandom. So we had Scorpio versus Godfather. Um, not a great one. Uh, you know, it, they, both guys did have some boxing skills, but they're just really, they didn't have the ability to finish or put everything together. So it was just a lot of shifting around, footwork, throwing jabs, really not able to put together good finishing strategies, especially within a one minute, uh, you know, a one minute uh, adventure there. And then moving to August 10th, another uh, return, Mark Marrow. Mark Marrow's back versus Bradshaw. That's right. Marrow is back because Blackman hurt himself while training and had to withdraw from the tournaments. And they didn't have alternates. They didn't have like alternates doing a match so somebody could be plugged in at the last minute. So Marrow advanced after losing and was beaten down by the brawling style of the much larger JBL.
1: Yeah, so first, first on that first match between Too Cold and The Godfather, before the match, The Godfather came out with his hose and offered his hoe to Too Cold to let him have the match just like he would for a regular match for WWF at the time which is amazing that he cut a promo with boxing gloves and his hose in the ring and then proceeded to get into a shoot fight and shout out to Uncle Too Cold cuz he was probably one of the shortest guys in this tournament and I can tell you from personal experience and training with
0: the man he's got some hands <laughs> uh yeah you know, we and then you know, move along, you know savio Vega versus draws draws won on points, most likely because Vega aggravated an old arm injury, and honestly he was never the same that arm injury became permanent, and this essentially ended his w w f career on August seventeenth Bradshaw versus draws draws was tough, and we saw that against uh, road warrior uh but not quite tough enough against a man of Bradshaw's size and aggressiveness, so he lost on points in another, you know, bar brawl style match. And then we got Godfather versus Bart Gunn. Godfather, like we said, he was a big guy, had a good reach, uh, had some boxing ability, some footwork. Things that Gunn did not have... But when you've got power, aggression, and the ability to take a uh, punch, sometimes that's all that matters. Uh, you know, he was actually landing on Gun enough that Gun went for takedowns, couldn't really get much. He had a, his, his single was clearly terrible. And Godfather used that reach just to jab, make the jab, make the jab, but he couldn't put it together. Godfather wore down and was KO'd by a right hook from the Southpaw Bart gun. And I want to talk about Southpaw, because boxing is a hard thing to pick up in a short amount of time already. Picking up boxing in a short time and then having to box a Southpaw, nope, bad time, you're not gonna enjoy yourself because an aggressive Southpaw comes from weird angles. We're both Southpaws. And I honestly put at least a third of my success on the fact that I just, I'm I'm a Southpaw and people didn't know how to read it.
1: Yeah, a couple things about that. First, the more trained you are, the worse a Southpaw can throw you off. But also the less trained you are, the more the simplicity of a southpaw's game can just devastate right out of the gates now i want to say this in watching the tournament back this was the best fight in the high, in the whole tournament in my opinion cuz it was definitely a brawler trying to land that haymaker against godfather who's probably about 6 foot 6 and he had a legitimate jab and he had a legitimate takedown defense relatively speaking for the match and It went back and forth. He was keeping him away. He was playing the distance and he was outboxing the brawler. But once he started getting tired and Bart Gunn started landing these vicious shots, and here's the other thing about being a southpaw. You can commit your physics to the punch with more confidence because the difference in footwork and angle makes it so that typically when the lefty throws that left hand, he's done the work to set up the angle. The guy's going to be where you're aiming at. So... That's why lefties throw with just such reckless abandon, and we saw that here, man.
0: Oh, absolutely, because you know you have that right hook, and when you're boxing, and you're an orthodox fighter, um, and you're throwing that right hook, it comes from a much different body mechanics than your lead right hook off of a southpaw, so it comes from a different angle, it comes at a different speed, it comes from a different position, that unless you spar with a very strong southpaw, you're not going to know how to defend it very well.
1: Yeah, and when when you're talking about a guy throwing, when his left hand's in the back as a southpaw, and he's throwing that left with everything he's got, it's like a quarterback throwing a Hail Mary. He's following through complete rotation, that lead hook is now loaded and coming from so far away that, he, and the body's almost turned. You can't even see it coming. And he hit Godfather on the button with that hook. He threw this lunging straight left that missed and it cocked the right. He came back with the right and he almost knocked Godfather's head
0: off. Oh, man. yeah. I mean, that was, that wasn't being knocked out. That was being knocked the fuck out. I mean, yeah. It was, it was like, it was one of those, oh. It wow. was ugly. Like, the, the way that his body was laying
1: on the on the ring with his head over the edge. And there's no, like, by modern eyes,
0: we're like, where's the doctors?
1: Where's the referees?
0: He was knocked the fuck out and just laying there like a limp puppet. Yeah, because once, once again, I want to just reiterate this. His technique was very bad, but it was great for what he was doing. Because... You know, he he kept his hands up, but he kept his elbows out so his body was exposed. But he kept taking these body shots from very amateur punchers who didn't know how to put much into it or, like, really find the liver or the solar plexus. So he was just, like, taking a lot of punches. He clearly had very good conditioning. He had good wind. He knew he had just good timing on those. Like, his punches were, like fucking just like swinging for home runs every time. He wasn't trying to bunt or like set up a jab or set up combos. He was just swinging for the fences, but he had good accuracy and good power. And that's all he really needed for what he was doing.
1: And good conditioning because he was throwing with malicious intent and he wasn't gassed in that third round because that's the problem with throwing all your weight behind your punches and not picking your shots. You're going to tire quickly. You are now doing Explosive anaerobic movements, and you can only do so many of those. But his conditioning won him this fight for sure, because he was losing
0: technically in the first round, and he came back. Man, it was a beautiful match. Yeah, he did not pace himself whatsoever. I mean, it's one minute rounds, but still, for anybody who has not boxed, kickbox, done MMA, done any sort of fight sports, go put on a pair of gloves. You know, find a heavy bag. Um, Find a a piece of meat hanging from the ceiling, Rocky style, and just hit it as hard as you can nonstop for one minute and tell me how you feel. So this is very impressive despite the lack of finesse, the lack of nuance and strategy. On a physical brute strength level, this guy just had it going on and that's what carried him this far. And this sets up the final match, the big match. And that's where we're looking at him Versus the guy that this whole thing was centered around to make him shut the fuck up, JBL. And I have to give it to WWF. I have to give credit where credit's due for committing, for not pulling the plug once they realized what a terrible idea this was. Because WWF, WWE, is notorious for killing Angle's you know, mid, uh, you know, mid angle, mid storyline because they weren't connecting or Vince didn't like it or whatever reason. This became an undeniable train wreck, a disaster. People were getting hurt left and right. We already saw Dr. Death get knocked the fuck out hurt his leg, potentially a career-ending situation, definitely a character-destroying issue. We saw Vega lose with an arm injury that would haunt him for the rest of his career, essentially ending his career. We saw uh, an unheralded mid-carder in a tag division knocking people out left and right. We've seen momentum killed. We've seen momentum built from people they didn't expect it from. But God bless their little hearts, they saw this to the bloody violent end.
1: They probably looked at the bottom line on a piece of paper that some nerd handed them and realized that they were past the point of no return. They had lost so much on this that they might as well get some sort of payoff out of it.
0: It's the only thing that makes sense because the audience never heated up for this. Like they hated it as much at the end as they did at the beginning. There was no like slow build to an audience appreciation. This was a shit show from day one, and there was a giant pile of injuries and ruined reputations already in the rear view, but they brought it to this. They still had JBL, and JBL wasn't necessarily a main eventer, but he was a big star. He was a big presence on television, and he had been clearing house all the way. Vince Russo clearly built this whole thing around humbling him and bringing him down a peg, but he was winning. He was knocking people out. It was sloppy. All these fights were Terrible. If you took a bunch of footage of, you know, recess, playground fights from an elementary school and intercut it with footage of a bunch of koalas trying to climb over each other in a frenzy and added the sound of an arena full of human beings booing the shit out of it. You would not know the difference between that and a supercut of this tournament. But here we are. We're at the finals. We're finally going to see who the toughest son of a bitch on the undercard or staying home roster is. And it comes down to JBL. Bradshaw is ready to go against this unheralded tag specialist midcard left in the dust by his tag partner, Bart Gunn. And good God that they bring it for what it was. They came out swinging. Gun floor JBL almost immediately with that big right hook. JBL got back up to his feet for the standing count. And was quickly KO'd with a monster hook yet again. If you watch it on YouTube, you find a video of this. It is an absolutely perfectly placed, not a great technical hook. Like we keep talking about how bad their technique was. But sometimes... You land the perfect spot with the perfect amount of power. You get your timing down. You land that one punch you know you can land. It's lights out. And JBL, I, one thing I don't know if we really talked about is how fucking big he was compared to some of the people he was fighting because there were no weight classes. And in pro wrestling, sometimes you see a guy and go, oh, my God, he must be like a tiny little fellow, like a like a weight or a lightweight. And then you realize he's still six foot two, 230 pounds. He has just been standing next to a guy who's six foot six, 260 pounds.
1: Yeah, JBL was the bigger man in this fight. You know, uh, Gunn is definitely not a little guy. He weighed in at 262 pounds. He's probably a good 6'3. And these are two grown ass men throwing with bad intentions. They And to JBL's credit, he is a tough motherfucker. He's a big six foot five, 290 pound Texan who doesn't back down when he's getting punched in the face, and that'll win you a lot of fights, but he took a fucking shot.
0: And I feel like I'm uh, beating a bit of a dead horse with this, but I have to say again, it was sloppy with terrible boxing skills on display, but at least it was quick, exciting, and had a definitive finish. And Russo got to watch his least favorite person get KO'd, so success based on what the concept was? Oh,
1: yeah, I would totally throw away 15 careers to watch the bully get slept in the finals. I, and on that, you, you got to wonder how much he was sweating that JBL made it to the finals. That pro- He was probably so scared, because can you imagine if JBL
0: had actually won this thing? Oh, and that I feel like that was probably expected kind of at this point, because JBL had dominated everyone he had stepped in the ring with up until this point, but... That big, uh, you know, southpaw right hook from uh, from Gunn was just a little too much twice in a row within a matter of minutes. So he came within spitting dif- distance of proving Vince Russo wrong on every level, defying him, spitting, you know, pissing the eye. At- I don't know where I'm going with this. And I don't want to, like, lionize him. Bradshaw was tough. He was also, and still is, a terrible human being on nearly every level. He got what he deserved. This really did build to an unheralded uh Danny LaRusso versus the the bully bad guy in the All-Valley Karate Tournament. This ended up being storytelling at its finest by pure fucking accident. In the sloppiest fashion possible, but that was still there. You still almost had that unheralded baby face to root for against an out-and-out terrible person, a heel in both real life and in wrestling. JBL is a dick. (laughs)
1: And he got knocked the fuck out. And when I talk about like limp puppet that Godfather got put in, in the the semifinals, this was even worse because the truth is, if you watch it back, he probably uh, a trained referee probably would have not let that fight continue after the standing eight count. He asked him if he was ready to continue and it looked like he was not even present in mind. And, To Gunn's credit, he charged forward and gave him the two-piece in the biscuit, and JBL got knocked the fuck out. It looked like the old fight night video games where the guy gets stuck on the ropes. It was glorious.
0: And as Gunn raised his gloved hand in victory, Shawn Michaels on commentary declared, You're looking at a guy who has just made a name for himself in the business. Jim Ross added that Gunn might have opened the door to a new career. Oh, the irony of these statements, because... A smart promoter who just saw this guy come out of nowhere, slaughter everyone, sacrificed a dozen careers or more, and now you have a guy with a crazy reputation for a right hook and tenacity and toughness, you would think you would find a way to capitalize on that. You would find a way to push this guy into a pay-per-view feud. You would find a way to make real money off of what was otherwise a fiasco, but unfortunately, we are talking about the WWF where that never happens.
1: They had to bury the last piece of evidence of this thing ever existing, man. They couldn't push this guy. It was He was the representative of this terrible idea. Now they, they had this problematic uh, sort of Cinderella story on their hands. And I can't imagine that they would have gone the way they did if they weren't trying to just get rid of the thing completely because my first thought at the time was why is the winner not fighting ken shamrock why is the winner not getting an opportunity to go after a
0: championship belt Yeah, you could have made some very interesting matchups with something like this to put him up against a guy like Ken Shamrock or Dan Severn or, you know, lord over everyone that he has, you know, knocked all these people out. But instead, they kind of took him off TV for a while. He wasn't even mentioned. And when he came out occasionally, they would never bring up his big win, his victory, He would just get attacked by Steve Williams or Bob Holly, making a minor feud for beating them at Brawl For All, which they were just barely mentioning. This was not pushed, this was just something to almost fill time. It had zero heat behind it, zero real push, and instead of making him a star after winning this, they almost punished him for doing so. It made me think about how the UFC initially treated Amanda Nunez for beating Ronda Rousey.
1: Yeah, whenever you step on the golden goose, you're probably going to get the ire of the office. And regardless of what they did to make this happen, they had an idea in their head how this was going to go, and the reality is the two guys that this was built around, Dr. Death and JBL, he knocked them both he knocked them both
0: out. Yeah, this wasn't a point decision. This isn't want some sort of fluke thing. These were definitive ass kickings with both men laying face down on the floor not knowing what fucking year it is. These were not close calls. He dominated. He knocked them out in the first round. JBL, who had been built as the toughest son of a bitch around, ended up with his uh, you know fucking eyes rolled in the back of his head, lying on the canvas with guns standing over him. But do they take that opportunity to go, oh shit, we can ride this momentum and turn it into something Much like the WCW invasion angle, it was all just about burying the upstarts, burying the opposition for daring stand up against the established plan. It was a chaotic thing to do, but they did it, and they didn't like the consequences, and that's how it went.
1: One thing that you can bank on when it comes to the WW is that if somebody gets over in any way that was not the plan from the office, that shit ain't happening.
0: We see that again and again and again and again, and we still see it constantly. This isn't some sort of, uh, you know, raw rundown show. So, you know, we're not going to bring up examples, but everybody knows what we're talking about. But you would think that they could have taken this. They could have taken Bob Holly. They could have taken Dr. Death. They could have given them enough to work with to redeem them as dangerous people in the you know, in world of pro wrestling combat, the, the works matches, the TV matches, and rebuilt them based on a feud with Gunn to elevate everybody to some sort of massive pay-per-view blow-off, that is not what they did whatsoever, because what the fuck did they do? Well, come WrestleMania 15, they put Bart Gunn in the ring in a boxing match with Eric butterbean esh
1: That is about the biggest fuck you you could get because the reality is he's considered a bit of an oddity fighter, but that man is a trained knockout specialist, has been all around the world, and regardless of who won that tournament, Bart Gunn has no business being in a professional boxing type situation against Butterbean, and it showed,
0: man. Because Butterbean, you know, he's a a rather rotund fella. But here's the thing. He is still a professional boxer with a lot of experience, proper training, under these rules. And even the worst pro boxer is going to knock the shit out of some goofball who won a tough man competition.
1: Yeah, it was really, really sad. Because what it ultimately, ipso facto, what it's saying is the best fighter that is in the WWF is going to get knocked the fuck out as soon as he puts he gets in the ring with a real boxer and it was a really tragic end to the the glorious dumpster fire that was the brawl
0: for all and it wasn't a back and forth it wasn't a long fight butterbean floored him almost immediately he gets up for the standing count and as soon as it restarted, I believe it was just a big overhand style hook, boom, right on the button. That is fucking it, KO from hell. Every single person who was involved in this tournament got buried by the reality of trying to fight a boxing tough man competition. And then the guy who walked out the winner who should have been the uh, the, the the golden child, the, the guy with the big push, they put him in a freak show boxing match against a pro, had him destroyed. Every single career, every single person, everybody who was injured, it all now means nothing, both real life and story-wise. They just did this to destroy the man, destroy the concept, and move on instead of trying to build anything off of it.
1: Yeah, when you think back, you wonder whose career had any sort of positive arc after this, and the vast majority of guys this definitively changed the path of their career. There's a couple guys that still did some pretty awesome shit. Obviously JBL had his biggest run after this. Like I said, uh, what was it? Jacques Pierre who became PCO. He's still out doing amazing shit. He's probably doing the best shit out of anybody who's in this today, but this did nothing but hurt every single person involved. And many of
0: them just simply lost, you know, they didn't just lose their momentum. It didn't just mean they lost their 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 spot on television. Careers were ruined. You know, Vega's arm was fucked. He never really made a comeback. Steve Williams, he lost so much, he, like, because he had that aura of being this, tough as nails, you know, guy who would beat anyone in a real fight. He got exposed. He got his ass kicked. He was injured. He was on the shelf for a long time. He never really made a comeback. Uh, You know, Dan Severn was smart to walk away because he only saw bad things coming based on this. People were hurt. People were exposed. Careers were ruined. Nobody enjoyed it. Nobody made any real money off of it, I guess, except for uh, Bart Gunn, who got his 100K at the end of the road. But then every opportunity that the WWF had to push him or profit upon him was just shut in his face out of essentially spite.
1: Yeah, imagine being the Marty Jannetty of the smoking guns and then working your way back into TV via shoot fighting tournament only to get fed to Butterbean and then told, fuck you.
0: And it was there really was no way to make this a good situation across the board because it was trying to take a weird ruled shoot fight and drop it into the world of worked entertainment matches. Think of it as if in the middle of a Fast and Furious movie, Vin Diesel had to legitimately fix a transmission halfway through the movie, not in character, he just had to fix part of his car, Like a three-hour movie, the middle forty-five minutes is him just trying to, uh, you know, trying to, you know, fucking change his oil or whatever. It's taking too much reality and dropping it into the middle of the fantasy you're enjoying, and it isn't just bad objectively on its own. It poisons the whole fucking thing. And they could have saved it if Stone Cold had just come out and hit a
1: motherfucker with a stunner, and they just killed it right there. It would have been fantastic.
0: But they saw it through. They took everyone down, and it all just came from. Their head rider having a grudge against the locker room bully, and they let that spill into the product, and that is never a good idea. But it is what it is. It shows that you can never go home again. You can't take pro wrestling back to its real fighting roots, even though they tried to make it boxing, which is a weird goddamn thing. They tried to make showbiz tough guys look like legitimate fighters in the era where the UFC and MMA was already on the map. They tried to do the impossible and they failed, but it's a fantastic train wreck. It's like watching, you know, like some horrifically bad movie. It's like watching Birdemic, The Room, half of Nicolas Cage's IMDb list. This is a train wreck entertaining only as a train wreck.
1: Yeah, and think of it in this context. Imagine trying to, like those glorious dumpster fires, that you just talked about in cinema imagine someone trying to get this made today. Imagine someone coming in 2021 to WWE and pitching the brawl for all and them trying to put this on now. It would not happen. It couldn't happen. Not just from the obvious level of the business, just terrible idea. It is they don't have anybody that could even go in there and throw like that on the current, like it's a, it's, there were just enough old school dinosaurs names in it you know road warrior hawk dr death to make it work but at the end of the day we saw that no one really had the skill to be a true professional fighter and it just it was just a bad
0: look all around man because this isn't a day of brock Lesnar's and matt riddles and bobby lashley's and these type of guys this is a day of tough guys floating on their reputation of stiff matches and bar brawls and a bar brawl and a stiff match is not the same as a legitimate fight You can't really translate that one way or the other. Is it possible to look back and say they should have known better? Maybe, but it's also hard to deny that they were on a roll with every crazy idea. There was a logic to it, but it did not pay off whatsoever. And what a fucking story. What a train wreck. What an amazing disaster it ended up being. And I'm so glad we got to talk about this. Because we've been talking about these series of events that really happened in a short amount of time with the rise of the internet and reality fighting, MMA, where all the bullshit suddenly looked like bullshit and got exposed by bullshit. But some people tried to hang on. Some people tried to jump on. Some people tried to capitalize. But in the end, wrestling is wrestling. Real fighting is real fighting. But there's nothing wrong with that. Wrestling is storytelling. Wrestling is theater. Wrestling is mythology. It is amazing to watch because you are watching a comic book movie. It's the same reason you root for Captain America and want him to beat Thanos. A good baby wrestler standing up to the big heel is Captain America strapping on his broken shield to take on everybody. You, your emotions and your storytelling instincts are what's important. And they poisoned that well. They shot themselves in the foot. They learned a lesson. Here we
1: are. Professional wrestling is superhero stuntman fighting in one take in front of a live studio audience. With a theatrical application of combat and this illustrated the difference between theatrical application and competitive application when you are specialized in the latter it was really really devastating to everyone involved like i can't express enough how much this talk this would have ruined the mystique and the run that the road warriors had that dr death had in japan they were exposed to a point of, it was damn near, it ended up being damn near career suicide for almost everyone involved. And it really illustrated the difference between a work and a shoot.
0: Or do you mean a work and a hippodrome? hippodrome? Oh boy, thank you so much for following us on this little adventure that we have been on exploring the weird world of Real fights and fake fights throughout the 90s where martial arts and pro wrestling and real fighting intersect. I love these last few episodes. I'm so glad you've been here. Hopefully you enjoy them just as much as we did. Make sure you like us on uh, Facebook. Make sure you follow us on Twitter. Check out some wacky things we're putting on Instagram. I like to find old articles that uh, make me laugh. Hopefully they do the same for you. And we'll be back in two weeks with another crazy tale of pro wrestling's past. What it will be? You have to be there to find out. So for Chago Bronson, I'm Nick Gossard. Thanks for following us. We'll talk to you next time.
1: Cut, print, martini.